We are in the book of Haggai. If you, um, if you haven't turned there yet, please do so. If you need a Bible, we have little pew Bibles that we can pass out to you. Just stick your hand up. We have some ushers that will pass it out to you. I want you to follow along with me as we get into uh, the book of Haggai. Uh, also, just a quick announcement. We won't be having children's uh, worship today. So we have crayons for the kids and some coloring pages. So if you need a, cr- a crayon page, stick your hand up. Or if you need a Bible, stick your hand up. You might get a Bible or a crayon. So it depends on your age. It might go either way. So just keep your hands up high so that they can see. So they might have crayons and, uh, or Bibles. But if, you're, um, if you needed a Bible, we are on page 791. Um, we're going through the book of Haggai. Haggai is an Old Testament book. Uh, it's 38 verses long. It is the second shortest book in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's a book that we kind of, uh, kind of like a flyover book. You know, we, if we're at all familiar with the Bible, we kind of read Genesis. If you've ever tried to read the Bible, you start off with Genesis and you're going strong. You get through Exodus, start slowing down, you hit Leviticus, and it's a halt. And then you flip, 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 and you get to Matthew. And that's what many of us do. Um, and the reality is, is there's a lot of great books in there that we need to stop and park on and see what God has for us. And we are in the book of Haggai, and it is, it, uh, our series is entitled Consider Your Ways, as we are looking at um, which way do we choose. And Haggai presents an option for us. Do we choose my way, or do we choose God's way? And we're all familiar with the Frank Sinatra song, Frankie, I did it my way. You know, and I think I did it my way is going to be the theme song for those that are going to hell, quite possibly. Because we, we either can choose our way and our desires and what we want and how to live our life, or we can choose God's way, which is the best way. And that's what the book of Haggai is about. And as I was meditating on this passage and thinking about it, the book is about really who's on first, who is, has first place in your life. And since it's baseball season, I think many of us remember the Abbott and Costello bit, who's on first, right? How many of you, how many of you know who's on first? I'm going to do it all for you right now. Both parts. Okay, just kidding. But if you remember, you've got Bud Abbott, who's kind of the tall, straight-laced guy. And then you've got uh, the little shorter uh, Lou Costello. And Lou wants to be a baseball player, and he's talking to Bud Abbott, and he says, you know, I want to be a baseball player, and I want to know the players' names on the team. And he responds, and he says, you know, they have pretty funny names today. And, and then they start doing this whole bit back and forth of, of the guys on the team. And, and we know that the guy's name playing first base is? Who? There we go. And the person on second base is? What? And who's on third base? I don't know. I don't know. That's good. That's great. It shows me that you've listened to this probably a little too much. You need to get off YouTube, okay? Um, and we have all of this going on. And, and the reality, though, is... is there, there is a question, and the reason that obviously he gets it wrong is because Abbott is, um, Lou thinks that Bud is doing it as a question when he's really making a statement. Now, if we were to think about our lives in that same way, who has first place in our life? Many of us would undoubtedly say, because we know the right answer should be God, right? But we, would, we are masters of deflecting attention from ourselves. And we can make jokes about stuff all the time. And we'd say, who? Who is it? Who's really on first base? And, and, and we'd try to say, well, God should be. And we'd say, who? And, and the reality is, is that God is not on, has first place in our lives. Matter of fact, God doesn't have second place in our lives. 
the reality that most of us face is God doesn't even have third place in our life. God isn't even on deck. I mean, or not even in deck. That's when they're batting. Sorry. He's not even in the dugout for most of us. Really. And Haggai is calling us to ask ourselves the question, who has first place in our lives? Now, he's speaking to the people of Israel during what is known as the the post-exile. What that means is the nation of Israel had sinned against God, and God had sent them warnings through these individuals called the prophets. Warning, 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 warning. And finally, the warnings were done. And God sends this people, the Babylonians, under the, the reign of a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, against them and totally decimates the city of Jerusalem. They knock down the walls, and they destroy the very center of the identity of the Jewish people, which is the Jewish temple, in the year 586 or 587 B.C. And then Nebuchadnezzar takes all of these these Jews and transports them to Babylon, where they stay for 70 years. And it had been prophesied through the prophecy of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah talks about this that they were going to be there for 70 years um, until God would bring them back. And God brings them back first under the leadership of this guy named Zerubbabel, which we talked a little bit about last week. And Zerubbabel leads these people back because the Babylonians had been uh, conquered themselves by the Medo-Persians. And the king of the Medo-Persian empire, a guy named Cyrus, wants to get favor with the gods, as it were. So he sends the Jewish people back to build a temple so that they could make offerings for him and his sons. So he's a religious guy, but he's basically, I want to make sure every religion is taken care of and then I'll be fine. It's an approach that we have many in our world today that do. And so he sends him back. He's a pagan king. He's not a believer. And so these guys go back, and they lay the foundation of the Jewish temple, and then they celebrate. And if we remember, some of the people were just joyously excited because they, they were younger. They, they had seen, now they're seeing they're their, their coming back to their land, and the temple's being rebuilt, and it's a time of jubilation. But those who were older, who had been kids or teenagers, when they had left um, Jerusalem and gone into Babylon. They come back 70 years later. So these are people in their 80s and their 90s, and they remember the glorious temple, how beautiful it was, and they were weeping. So you have half the group weeping, half the people crying out in joy, and it says that in the text that you couldn't tell the difference between who is who. But like any other project, it's not getting it started that the problem occurs. It's finishing it, right? How many of you have projects in your home that you've started but never finished. Yeah, and we all do. And I, I think some, there's some women right now are thinking of a list for their husband after the service of stuff that needs to be done. All right? Now, what happened here, though, is that the people had started rebuilding or building the, the, the temple, and then they had stopped because of persecution. People didn't like this work of God going on around because there are new people that had settled in the land. So they are coming against them saying, don't build, stop. And these guys are threatened and fearful So they stop building. And the building stops for 16 years. 16 years. And until Haggai shows up. 
And Haggai is given a verse, I mean, this, this message to speak to the people. And this book is only 38 verses long. As I mentioned before, it is the second shortest book in the entirety of the 39 books in the Old Testament. The shortest being the book of Obadiah. And so this book, God is speaking through this prophet to his people. Because, see, the people thought, you know what? Since we can't get the temple done, we can do well for ourselves. So they started settling down, and they were, you know, they were making frequent trips to Home Depot, and making, you know, they had they had a lot of remodeling plans and rebuilding efforts, and they're they're painting the walls, and the place looks fantastic, but yet God's house lies in ruins. And so God, through Haggai, says, Consider your ways. Because see, these people had their houses put together, but their lives weren't fulfilled. They were struggling, and it, it didn't matter what they did. They just didn't, like, they couldn't get ahead. On paper, they looked great, but personally, they were just struggling inside. So God speaks to the people to give them a big, giant wake-up call and ask the question, truly, who is on first? Now, I'd say that many of us, we feel something similar. On paper, we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Seriously. We have more things than, I mean, the majority of the world's population. I mean, think about that. Think about the luxuries that you have every day that we take for granted. Whether it's going just to your refrigerator, whether it's being able to read the verses that we just went through, I mean, there are people that just can't read. I, I had an opportunity this past week. We, uh, World Relief started meeting their classes here through the week. And uh, there was a young man. And he, uh, where, where was he from, Andrea? Bhutan. Bhutan. And uh, he, he doesn't speak any English, just arrived in this country. And one of his eyes, he didn't have access to any health care, so he can't see out of one of his eyes, and he has a cataract in the other. And, 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 and he's never had any access to any public school education whatsoever, so he can't even read in his own language. And we think about that. The fact that you even can read is a huge blessing. I mean, the fact that you can have a job and make money and you can be here in an air-conditioned building. I mean, think about that. These are little things that God has allowed us to be beneficiaries of, but for whatever reason, we still feel empty on the inside. Like it's something, it's not enough. What's wrong? And we keep putting more and more stuff into our lives. We think if we can buy more stuff, we can get more stuff, we can have more of this, and yet no matter how much we get, we get more and more empty. I'm amazed at that. And Haggai is laying forth the reasons why. It's because God hasn't had first place. He's not on first base. And we need to have God in first place in our lives. Now, we can fix that. But we need to make that relationship right with God. And making that relationship right and experiencing what God has for us, we need to first identify the problem. You can write that down. You have notes that are within your bulletin. You can write that down. Identifying the problem. Now, we had a flood here in our lower level in April. And we were trying to figure out, we looked at the carpet, we ripped it all out, and we were trying to figure out where did the flood originate from. And we, we couldn't quite figure out where it had gone. So we brought out some experts, and we'd, we'd had to rip off the tile, we ripped off the carpet, we ripped off the tiles underneath till we're at flush of concrete, and we see all these different cracks. And we, we talked to uh, 
this expert that came in, and he says that the water table had risen. And it was rising underneath the, the very foundation of the church. And the reason was, one of the reasons is, because the parking lot was made wrong. So when the rain would come, instead of going off into what we call Grace Lake on the side, um, going there, it had pulled backwards and it come back to the very foundation of the church. And now, see, we had to identify the problem. And it, we had to diagnose it. We had to walk backwards and say, okay, we have leaking. What's going on? So we're investigating. Now, if we're to investigate in our lives and say, what is the problem? God's going to describe, first of all, the symptoms, and then he's going to get to the root issue of what we are struggling with. Now, we can see here that the problem involves, first of all, it involves futile plans. Futile plans. I want you to look back at the text with me and follow along as we really consider these different plans. Verse 5, look at verse 5, Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. Now, it's interesting there. I don't know about you, but I grew up in farm town. Anybody else grew up in farm town? Remember that? Yeah. Woot, woot. All right. And being a farmer, we don't realize how much we are dependent upon rain. It's huge. I remember getting in my grandfather's truck, and we would drive. This is what you do in the country. You drive and run to the each of the fields and look at these, these rain gauges to see how much water that you got. And, and I, I, I'm amazed at farming after being around farmers my whole life and just seeing what goes into farming. I mean, we don't really understand. They have to look at a field, and then it, it depends on, you know, what is the location of the field? Does the field flood? What kind of uh, soil is in the field? Can it sustain this crop? What crop has been there before? So we might have to rotate the crops. There's all these things that go into it, and then they have to think of the right thing to plant, and then they, they finally plant, and then and it depends on the rain and the sun and the wind and all the weather, all these different things to see if it will ever grow. But they planned and planned and they'd, they'd strategize and they put it all together and nothing worked. Nothing worked. So that's the problem. God said, you have sown a lot. You've put a lot of thought into this. You've planned it, but it's failed. You failed. And he says, that's one of the reasons why you need to pay attention to what I'm telling you. And then he says, not only have your plans failed, but you have failed to prosper. You failed to prosper. That's the next little letter, a little B under number one. You've failed to prosper. He says that I would, you, would, you would sow much, but you would harvest little. You would do all of this work, and you kept putting in more overtime, and you thought if I just can get to the next level, everything's going to be fine. But you'd get to that level, and it wasn't fine. And you're noticing even your money would be short. And it says like you've got your pocket and it's got holes in it. Keep putting money in and it's gone. So not only are there futile plans, but you are failing to prosper. And then God gives the reason why. Look back at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, 
on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God's saying it's because his house lies in ruins. They were busy doing stuff for themselves, but God did not have first place. That's the next little point. God didn't have first place in their lives. They were saying, we're going through the motions. We are your people, God. But their hearts were far away from him. See, many of us think that we're doing fine if we show up to church to throw a little money in the offering. We've done our good deed for the year. That's not what God says. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than putting on a Bears jersey puts you on the roster. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't put you on the team. See, God demands first place, not just from a visual standpoint or lip service. God wants your heart. He wants the entirety of your life. He died to give you life. And many of us treat it like it's just, you know, something very, very minimal, very, very small. And, and you know, it's just lower on our list of priorities. And God says, no, I demand first place. God deserves and demands first place. He won't be pacified or ignored. Now, look what he did to get their attention. Look at verse 9. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Then he says, he goes on in verse 10, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills. Now, you better believe that that woke him up really fast. Because again, this is an agrarian society. Without water, it was all, it was not a big deal. Now, for us today, if there's a drought, it doesn't affect us that much. We go to the grocery store, we get some of our fruit and vegetables from Venezuela or Mexico. We get it shipped in. We don't think about that. It's just a little inconvenient for us. But for them, this was a huge deal. I mean, massive. We have no idea how big it is because when they hear the word drought, they think the next word that begins with D, death. And that meant some of my family members are going to die. I, can't, I, won't have, I won't have water to drink. I won't have any ability to sustain my family, to provide for them. I mean, it was a major wake-up call. We don't understand what that meant to them. I mean, think about how irritated we get when gas prices are up. How many of you complained about gas prices recently? Or the price of milk? We're like, eh, I mean, it's a little uncomfortable. Now imagine there's no milk there. Now some of you are lactose intolerant, don't care. Okay? But the reality is, is that God is saying, I want you to pay attention to this. I'm calling for a drought on the land. I am against you. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't like God declaring that he was against me. Because there's no way to win. There's no way to win. You know? Yet, I'm reminded of uh, Tim Adol. He's a teaching pastor of our campus. And his uh, middle son, Joshua, was causing... Uh, he, he's, he's a little kid that has no fear. You know, the kid, and everybody has one kid in their family just has no fear. And he was causing his mom a lot of problems. So Tim, who's, who's a big guy, Tim's like 6'2", over 300 pounds, and he's, not, he, he's muscle. He's a big dude. And he grabs his son Joshua, and he sits him down, and he gets right in his face. And he goes, you don't sash your mom like that. You, he goes, if you're going to get to your mom, you've got to go through me. And the little kid stared at him, and Tim goes, I was astonished, because he was wondering, can I take him? <laughs> you know? And there's no way it's going to happen. There's no way it's going to happen. But I think many of us are like that with God. Can I take him? 
Can I get away with it? Can I do just enough to get by, to pacify it? Now, see, here's the thing. God knows the heart. So there's no way that we can do that. So we must make sure that we're, we're honoring God and giving him first place in our life and not trying to pacify him. Because God can bring a drought again. Now, many of us, he doesn't bring a drought. He brings fluctuations in the economy. What was the one thing that you could invest in a few years ago that was always a guaranteed getting it back? House. Real estate, right? And what happened to the real estate market? It it collapsed. I mean, we think sometimes that we are so secure in who we are, and we fail to remember that it's just like this, and it could be the Great Depression all over again. I don't know if you grew up with your grandparents like I did. My grandparents lived. They were children in the Great Depression. And I remember them sitting at a plate at dinner, and I, I, I was a kid, and kids are picky eaters. And then they don't eat everything on the plate. And I watched my grandfather eat every single thing on his plate without exception, and then he would take a piece of bread, and then he would clean that plate until it looked like it had just been washed. Because he remembered what it was like to have no food. That lesson had never left him. And many of us today, we are a very spoiled people. We fail to remember that God can orchestrate circumstances in a heartbeat to get our attention real quick. It's like C.S. Lewis said, God whispers, us to un- whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God will bring pain and a change in your circumstances to wake you up to the reality of who he is. So that's what Haggai's saying. God has orchestrated this to wake you up to consider your ways. To consider your ways. Now, if we're going to have God to be first place, it requires us examining our priorities. Examining our priorities. Let's look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, look forward to verse 9. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Like, have you thought about this? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now, this is where we separate the pretenders from the real deal. Is God the number one priority in your life? Now, if you were to think about that, some of us would say, yes, God is the number one priority. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for a moment that you fall dead today. You have a heart attack, get hit by a bus, whatever you want to, any way you want to die, you can die. Okay? You're going to die. And you're going to, and, and, but you get the opportunity to read your obituary. What does your obituary say? Now, not many of us get that opportunity. But one man did. In 1888, Alfred Noble, who was the creator of dynamite, woke up and read in the paper his own obituary. He was very surprised to read that he had died. And it really wasn't him. It was his brother that had died. And they mistook, you know, mistook the, the brother. So it, instead of publishing his brother's obituary, it published his. And he was surprised to read the moniker that the author had chosen to use. And it was Merchant of Death. See, he had designed dynamite to save lives. 
oddly enough, because he felt that if he created a weapon so devastating that people would be so fearful that they wouldn't want to do anything with it. And that's not what happened, obviously, just like with nuclear weapons. People thought if we created it, no one would want to use it, and now we have everybody and their brother wanting to have one. So when he realized that, that that was what he was going to be remembered for, then he decided to make a change in his life. So he took his will and gave 90% of his money to establish those who had gone above and beyond to do something to create peace and became the Nobel Peace Prize, which is awarded to anyone who, decides, who, who does something above and beyond the call of duty to help orchestrate peace. But the point of the matter is, is that he thought he was remembered for one thing, but the reality was he was remembered for something else. Many of us think that we're going to be remembered for one thing, but what would your neighbor remember you for? Really? How about your, your uh, co-workers, classmates? What about your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces? Would they remember that you were a passionate follower of God? I can't tell you what it's like to be a pastor and then do funerals where, where you're at the, the funeral and you're told by a family member that this person was a believer, and then you mention that and people in the audience are like, are you kidding? Oh, something didn't happen. <laughs> there was a disconnect somewhere. So are you a passionate, passionate pursuer of God? And does God have first place in your life? See, I think many of us don't realize that we're only given a short amount of time. We always get, we think that we will be a passionate follower of God on my favorite day, and it's called someday. I mean, all of us are going to do something someday. I'm going to get in shape someday. I'm going to get out of debt someday. I'm going to get my life together someday never comes. God says now. I mean, God might have a period of your life. It, it, it could be just a few, a little short period of time. But what would you be remembered for? I, I, I want to show you two little verses that really struck me. And every time I read them, they strike me. It's about two kings in Israel's history. Two kings. Um, and the first one is Jehoahaz. He was 23 years old when he began to reign. This is all the scripture says about him. This is it. His life is summed up. God chooses for us to know about this guy just in these verses. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. 23! Now many of us today think, 23? I mean, he hasn't had a chance yet. And yet God says, no, 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 he had enough. He had three months to show whether or not he was righteous or not. Now think about the last three months of your life. I mean, here's another one, just to prove it again. 2 Kings 24, 8 through 9. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Three months was all that was needed for God to make a judgment on his life. Now, in our world today, we think, 18 years old, 23, the people are just figuring it out. God says, no, 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 that is your standard, not mine. 
See, again, we have a world where we have coddled and allowed perpetual adolescence to happen. I'm amazed at just at how that continues on. God says, no, no, no. You have enough, just in three months period of time, for me to determine whether or not you are wicked or righteous. Now, take the last three months of your life and think about that. What would God's judgment be on your life for the last three months? What would it be? Consider your ways. Where are your priorities? You know how we can see our priorities? First of all, we can see our priorities in this way. In our excuses. In our excuses. Look back at your text. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He captures their excuse. And he says, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's the someday. It'll get there someday. It'll be there someday. He says, no, no, no. The people are saying, the time hasn't come yet. We're not ready. We don't have it all together. And God says, no more excuses. What are you excusing in your life right now? To keep you from being obedient and choosing God's way. What's your excuse? I'm not old enough. I'm too old. Well, I don't have it all together yet. I'm not out of debt yet. I'm not in a place in my career yet. What's your excuse? Now, give that excuse to God. What is he going to say? Oh, you know, you're right. You couldn't be obedient yet. You weren't ready. You were too busy doing all of this. I don't think he's going to say that. No excuses. We either choose our way or we choose God's way. Choose God's way. So we have to make sure that we aren't making excuses because excuses really do reveal where our priorities are. If you're excusing why you're going on, you know, I can't give to God, but yet I can go on this huge vacation. Well, I need this for my family. Why does God get left out? Or I can get this new car, or I can do this, and I can do that, or I don't have time to do this, I'm too busy doing that. And God is sitting by the wayside. He always gets cut out. Why does he get cut out? He demands first place. Why do we keep excusing it? What are the things that you're excusing right now in your life? What is it? I'm just too busy. I have this. I have that. I've got this. I guarantee that God, that God isn't going to take favorably, receive your excuses favorably. Secondly, I think we can see what our expenses are. Our expenses. So we have excuses and we have our expenses. Now, look at your bank statement. Where do you spend your money? Do you give to God? You know, it's interesting. There was a story of Larry Osborne told, who's a pastor of North Coast Church in California. And the church was going through a remodeling project. And uh, they had hired and contracted out to uh, this union group contractor. Unbeknownst to them... The, the group had subcontracted to a non-union group. Well, some people found that out, and they showed up at the service with big giant placards and signs that said, shame on you, North Coast. Well, the people of North Coast, and even the pastor, didn't know this. But one man who had been attending the church was so frustrated that the church had used non-union men that he wrote a letter to the pastor. He said, dear pastor, I am, I am very appalled at the fact that you would not use union people in your uh, building of this building. Therefore, my family and I will be no longer giving to the ministry of North Coast Church until this is rectified. So the pastor went, I don't even know who this guy is. 
It's a very large church. So he goes to his administrative assistant, and he says, can you look up this guy? I want to know who he is. I want to know, you know his family. I want to know what he gives. And uh, who is this guy? So he looked it up, and he found that the guy had given only $500 the whole year before, and he'd given nothing this year. Zero. So, he, but he'd made himself sound like he was a big giver. So he wrote a letter the pastor wrote a letter to the, the man, and he says, Dear sir, I, I am so sorry that you have found such a difficulty at this church. And in order to assuage your conscience, we are returning the money, all of the money that you have given to us this, this year, sincerely. And then he goes, Did I send the letter? That's between me and Jesus. But see, we can really see where our heart lies. Now, we get frustrated sometimes when we hear people talk about money, and we've seen the abuse of it, and that's true. There have been uh, abuses that have been done, and those people will be judged accordingly. But the Bible does talk a great deal about money. Why? Because our hearts are really tied to it. We're tied to what money gives. And money reveals a great deal about where our heart lies and what we value. Some of us have made money an idol. Some of us have made what money can give us an idol. Some of us spend way too much. Some of us are just wasting it. Some of us aren't giving it the way that God designs and desires us to give and investing in Him. And that's making God primary. And we think, well, I just can't afford to give. I'm reminded of my college roommate. I was talking to him one time, and he was lamenting the fact that he said we, we couldn't afford to give, so we decided uh, we just couldn't give anymore. And uh, we just couldn't give because our expenses were too high. And we, every month, we were f- finding ourselves behind, and we couldn't make certain payments and bills. Finally, we just said, we were convicted. We said, God, we need to honor you as first place, and no matter what, and you'll take care of it. And that's exactly what happened. He said, we realized then we, could, we couldn't afford not to give. We have to honor God first and make him primary in our lives. Make him primary Now, excuses and expenses aren't the only thing that show where our priorities are. Our priorities also can be seen in what consumes our energy. Our energy. Excuses, our expenses, and our energy. What do we spend ourselves on? I mean, many of us are doing that. We're exhausting ourselves just to get ahead. And God, but if God, if you're not, if you're leaving God out of the equation, you're going to keep finding that you're going to be short every time. Because God says, I demand first place. You harvested, I mean, you sowed much, but you've harvested little. You've, you've been eating, but you're not full. You've been drinking, but you're still thirsty. It hasn't quenched your thirst. You put on clothes, but you're still not warm. Why? It's because I'm against you. Because you haven't, my house lies in ruins. In other words, you haven't made me first place. You haven't made me first place. And they were investing all of their energy. Now, it's interesting. Look back at the text. It says that you have busied himself. In verse 9, each of you busies himself with his own house. Now, it's interesting that the, the English Standard Version doesn't pick this up very well, but the New American Standard translates it literally, which is literally runs. The runs to his house. And the idea there that is being captured is that these people are continually spending themselves to get everything done for themselves, but not anything for God. Now, Richard Taylor, in his commentary on this, he says this, When it came to their own interests, they exerted a flurry of activity. But when it came to the, God, the Lord's interests, they wouldn't lift a finger. 
That was somebody else's job. Furthermore, their selfish pursuits are pictured not as a single instance of failure, but as a continual ongoing habit or way of life. Surely the Lord would not tolerate such a contradiction indefinitely. See, they exerted a flurry of activity for themselves, but not for God. And God's not happy with that. Where are you investing your time? And I know time's the most valuable thing that we have today. But you know what? Sometimes we have to clear our calendar and reassess our priorities. And then make God first priority. Are you serving? Are you volunteering? Are you giving of your time to serve God in ministry? You know, we have a lot of ministry directors here, and I've been talking and working with our ministry directors, getting things up to, to, to snuff, and we're putting it together, and God is doing some really cool things here that I'm, I've been really amazed at, and I think it's going to really continue as people are seeking his face. But as I talked to the ministry directors, I said, what's the number one struggle you're having? There's not people that are willing to serve. Or they're asking the same people, and that, those people are exhausted. If you are not serving, you need to be. Or volunteering. And that means in a lot of different ways. You could volunteer to even clean the toys in a nursery. That's volunteering. That helps. You could be greeting someone at the door, shaking hands, or welcoming new people. Maybe you're an extrovert and enjoys that. Or maybe you're a person who says, I'm a great painter or worker or handyman. We need that. Have you seen our downstairs? We have a lot of work. God's house literally lays in ruins downstairs. God can use us taking care of the grounds. We want to get this whole place redone. Not just the downstairs. I envision just the whole, even the parking lot being done and and a gymnasium and ministry center and whatever God wants to do. And and we're keeping it with open palm and saying to him, what God do you want to do here? I mean, do we believe that God wants to do something great? I think we say so, but I don't think we really believe that. You know, God's dreams are so much bigger than ours. That's why in Ephesians 3, where it says, God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Yet, we only believe that God can only do a little bit better than what we ourselves can do. Why can't God do much more than we could imagine? Why can't that happen? It's because we don't have faith. We don't have faith. See, God is asking us to invest our time, our treasures, and our talents for Him. If we're to have God first place, then it requires us making Him primary. Give God first place. Here's how. Look at verse 12. See, the Israelites respond favorably to Haggai's message. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, here's their leader, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, there's two leaders. One is like a civic leader, uh, that's Zerubbabel, and then Joshua is their religious leader who's the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, which is 50,000 people, by the way. 50,000 people have committed themselves to this. Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. First thing that we have to do and requires us to make God primary, obey immediately. Obey immediately. If it's not instant obedience, as we've said a million times, it's it's disobedience. If it's not instant obedience, it's disobedience. I've, I've shared that with my kids. If it's not instant obedience, it's disobedience. God is telling us right now to respond, to instantly obey, to do what he wants us to do. We can't wait. No more excuses. 
We need to make the changes necessary to obey immediately. There are no excuses. I, have, I can't tell you how many times people have been in my office and they, they talk about why they're struggling. And it's because they have engaged in some sin or practice. And then I said, what does God want you to do? And they said, well, he wants me to obey. Then why aren't you doing it? Stop it. I don't know if you've ever seen that little sketch with Bob Newhart. It's a pretty funny sketch. He's, uh, he acts as a psychologist or psychiatrist. And this woman comes in, and she sits down, and he says, well, I just need to let you know that uh, this, uh, I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and I don't make change. And, you, and uh, he said, no, I, don't, I find that the first five minutes, the problem's usually solved. And she's like, well, okay. He's like, do you agree to my terms? And she says, sure. And he goes, okay. Well, uh, tell me your problem. And it's a comic sketch. And she says, well, I have this fear of being locked in a box and being buried alive. And he goes, okay. Has anyone ever locked you in a box before? She goes, no. And he goes, okay, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you, I'm going to say two words, and I want you to uh, remember them. And she gets out her pad and paper, and she goes, I'll, I'll write them down. He goes, most people just can remember them pretty easy. And she says, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, here, here it is. This is what I want you to take away. Um, stop it! And she's like, what? He goes, stop it! And she starts going on, well, I, I, you're telling me to stop it. Yes! Stop thinking like that. That's weird. <laughs> and she's like, well, I, I, I have this fear that my mom, he goes, no, 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 we don't go there. And she goes, well, my, my horoscope. And he goes, no, 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 we definitely don't go there. Stop it! <laughs> and the whole routine is stop it. And that's what God is telling us to do. Stop it. Obey immediately. No more excuses. Do what God wants you to do. If you know what he wants you to do, then do it. Obey immediately. Secondly, this is what you're to do. Honor him appropriately. Honor him appropriately. Now, I want to show you this passage. What I mean by that is this. Treat God as God. And notice in the text in that second part of verse 9, it says not only did they obey the Lord, but it says that they feared the Lord. Now, the idea there is reverential awe, giving him the treatment of which he is due as God. Now, the book of Malachi says this in Malachi chapter 1. And, and this is a pretty long text, but I want us to see this. This is how we're to honor him appropriately. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? We've lost the concept of honor in our world today. Where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? And he goes on, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? Now let me catch you up if you're not familiar with ancient Judaism. They would bring sacrifices to God, but Jewish law prescribed that the sacrifice had to be the perfect age without blemish. Had to be pure. So people are bringing the animals that are half dead and sick, and they're throwing them on there because they don't need those. They're, in essence, giving their leftovers to God. God is insulted, and he says, present that to your governor. So would you offer that to the president of the United States if he came to your house? Now, I know some of you probably would because you're just jokesters, okay, because you don't like him. But, there's, but you, you treat him because he is the president of the United States. Present that to your governor. Will he not accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? 
and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, oh, that there were, were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So they would offer, also offer uh, fire within the temple and where the sacrifices would be. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. You're going through the motions. You're showing up at church and just dropping something in the offering, but it's not your heart. He says, I want your heart. He says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Treat me as great. One of the reasons that the world looks down on us is because we don't treat God great. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, laughing. What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, he makes a promise to God that I'm going to give what is best, and then he turns around and he gets the sickly one and he puts it on the altar instead. So he said, I'm going to give you what's best, God. Here, just give him the leftovers. It's okay. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We need to honor him appropriately. Now, how do we honor him appropriately? Don't give him leftovers. Don't give him table scraps. Indeed, we are to be giving generously. Giving generously. Now, the Bible talks a great deal about this. We're talking about giving generously. It means giving ourselves, first of all. We also, we give financially. We give in service. We give a lot of different ways. Now, here we see an idea of how we're to be giving generously. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 7 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is Paul writing, and he's writing about the churches in this region. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Were they wealthy? Were they giving just because they could afford it? Extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know what? I have No offense to anyone here, but I have yet to be in a church yet where people have begged to help in the relief of the saints. I'm waiting for that day. I'm waiting for that day. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then the will of God and to us. It's not about giving it to people. It's about giving it to God. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, as, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Even giving is an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So we must make sure that we are giving him appropriately or giving generously. Giving, it's about our faith, not our finances. It's about our attitude, not the amount. 
The attitude of the Macedonians was to help because of what Christ had done for them. There's no indication of the amount that they gave except that they gave according to their means and then beyond their means. And people always ask me the question, how much? How much? Well, it's like what C.S. Lewis said. You have that quote? I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. As Mother Teresa said, it's not giving until it hurts. And I say that to myself. Not just everybody here. I say it to myself. I give. And even my wife and I, we've talked about it. Giving till it hurts. And we wonder too. And we struggle just like everybody else does. But we want to honor God by our giving. And giving generously to Him. Giving generously to Him. And what does it mean? I mean, that also means sacrificially beyond their means. Look at this. Luke chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. This is Jesus telling the story of the widow and her might. And she goes to the temple, and a man had just dumped in a ton of money, and she goes and gives in just two coins. And Jesus says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich man putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's about faith. Where's your faith? See, God has a tendency, he, never want, he doesn't want to be in a box. He always has to pull us and get us to the point of, are you going to trust me? Now, there is a line between faith and foolishness. We have to acknowledge that. But most of the time, foolishness isn't our issue. I mean, foolishness is before, when we're not putting God in the equation, that's foolishness. When we put in, step into where God wants us to be, into the will of God, and we go through the door of God's way, it's a big act of faith. It's a big act of faith. So we see that in Luke chapter 21. And here's another one. This is how we are to give, by the way. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I have directed the churches of Galatia. This is also Paul by the Spirit writing to these churches in this region of Galatia, modern-day Turkey. So you, also are, uh, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Put something aside. Okay. And store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, there's three things I want us to see. These aren't in your notes, but you can write them down. We can see that their giving was planned. Was planned. Plan to give. Set it aside. When you're doing your budget, plan to give. It was planned. They planned it ahead of time. Secondly, it was personal. As he may prosper. As he may prosper, each individual, it, there was giving of themselves, not somebody else. So they were planned, it was personal, and it was in proportion to their income. Proportional to their income. Now, what does God want you to give? Now, I'm, I don't mean just financially, but I mean of yourself. How does he want you to serve? How does he want you to volunteer? What does he want you to do? What does God have for you? How can you show that God is first in your life? What can you do? I mean, what, what is it you have? I mean, we, we have, and it's, we didn't pick this book after the flood happened in our basement. We had this chosen months in advance, and then we see the flood happen. And now, some of the other guys were even commenting as we were looking at this passage. They said, this book really hits you. Your house lies in ruins. And yet, people are living in paneled houses and going on all kinds of vacations and all this other stuff. And, and yet, you know, we can go to all these baseball games. We can do all this. We can do all that. It's amazing we have money for that, but yet we don't have money for this. 
Is that not the sovereign hand of God directing and showing the intention and reality of our hearts? I think so. I think so. But what does God want you to do? What step of faith does he want you to take? I'm amazed at this church, the whole, all the campuses together. We have three campuses. We had a story this past week. We got an email from one of the other elders of one of the other campuses. This is an amazing story. One of the members at one of the other campuses had been reading about generosity. And he had just bought a, a mobile home and he, he was flipping it so he could make some profit. So he bought it cheap and he was going to sell it for $25,000, had it on the market. And then God had convicted him to give it to a, a, like a single parent with kids that it's about to lose their home. So he goes, I'm giving it with an open hand to give it to whatever God wants to do with it. That's where the rubber meets the road. How many of us can do that? How many of us have like this, the open hand on what we have? Whether it's our homes, maybe God's calling us to downsize. Maybe he's calling us to sell something. Maybe he's calling us to give sacrificially. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's called to volunteer, to work with the world relief. Maybe it's to be a greeter, an usher, or work in our nursery, uh, to be a teacher. I mean, the sky is limitless on what God can do here. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. We can be in prayer together, praying. And, you know, we think that we have to pray for the work. We do, but we also have to remember that prayer is work. Especially, especially a lot of the people that are, I mean, we're, my senior population, we can get you guys to be praying. You guys have a lot to value, offer. You're younger people. You can be serving in a lot of different ways. Helping out and doing, I mean, a variety of different things. And you can pray. We can all be doing something. And God has gifted us and put us all together for that reason to make his name known. To make God's name primary. Make his name primary. So, we're to make sure that we are obeying immediately, honoring him appropriately, giving generously, and lastly, working diligently. Look at verse 14. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the seventh year of Darius the king. Now, you have missed it earlier, but go back to verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, did, I don't know if you saw this or not, but most scholars believe their calendar is a little different than ours, that the work commenced on August 29th, 520 B.C., and it finished on September 21st, 520 B.C. They rebuilt the house of the Lord in under a month. That's what they did. It wasn't down the line. Could our whole downstairs could be finished in a month? And that's staggering. People are like, you're nuts. That's all right. My mother says the same thing. Okay? But I have a big God. I don't know about you. Like I said, I think many of us have a very little God. Oh, God can't do that. No, you can't, but he can. Where is our faith? We need to make sure that we are working diligently and offering ourselves. And I think when we realize that, we need to remember the, the words of Jesus as, as is related to us by Paul in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where Jesus says this, It is more blessed to give than receive. Give to receive. So it's, it's about serving God and offering ourselves to other people to the service of his kingdom that his name might be made known. And that we can minister. Th and think about what God wants to do in us and through us here. 
I mean, we've already seen, we had right here, set up a table this past week. This was so amazing. I got to come in and see, World Relief had their class this year. We had, uh, how many, three Iraqis? So you had two Muslims sitting in our church sanctuary. You had some Buddhists. I mean, Bhutan is 90, like 98% closed to the gospel, and they're sitting in our sanctuary. We have the opportunity to reach the nations. Do we not realize that and just reach the people of our neighborhood? That's driving me nuts. I don't know how people aren't excited about this. I am so excited at what God wants us to do, wants to do here. I mean, think about it. We can, reach, we can help reach the poor and the widow and the orphan and the prisoner and, and even the soldiers. And I mean, we call those the POWs in our community. I mean, imagine what we could do here and what God could do here, more importantly. I mean, this isn't all that there is. Call me a dreamer. Call me a dreamer. Joseph was a dreamer. <laughs> That's a good thing. But let's dream together. I don't want to just relive history. I want to make it. And I invite you to do it with me as we submit to God and do what he wants us to do and, and, and invest our lives in giving it to others and we'll find true happiness. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm going to close, close with this quote. He said this, Life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? It's a pretty good way to be remembered, isn't it? Serving others, giving ourselves to others, but mostly giving ourselves to God. Making sure that He is on first base. He has first place. Who's on first? That's a question. Consider your ways. Who's on first? Who has first place in your life? You've seen how God wants us to make Him, wants you to make Him first place. It's up to you to make that decision now.